The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. All right, so we're in a series called Grandpa's Campfire Stories. Uh, I got a question for you. Do you say grandpa or grandpa? Grandpa, yeah. Like Roby says grandpa. I'm like, dude, what, what's that? what are you saying? And then I say, it's grandpa. He goes, it sounds the same. I'm like, no, it's not the same. It's completely different. So we're in the story, Grandpa's Campfire Stories. And the idea is we're going through the life of Abraham. As you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis for a while. And the book of Genesis has a lot of information in it, so we have to move through it pretty quickly. But we're taking the life of Abraham. We're looking at stories from his life and things that he's teaching us. And the interesting thing about Abraham is he's such a man of God. He's like one of those guys that you want to fashion your life after. I mean, for that matter, Jesus referred to him when he told the world that he was God. He said, before Abraham, I am. Now, another quick thing I want to cover because it could get a little confusing is we know Abraham today as Abraham. In the time that we're going to talk about today, he was known as Abram. It's the same person. God changed his name the same way with Sarah. We know her more often as Sarah, but in this particular scripture, she was known as Sarai. So I'm going to use those terms kind of interchangeably, but we're talking about exactly the same people. So today, we're going to take a little bit of a different look at Abraham. You know, what we've been, as you look at Abraham's life, you see so many examples of a godly man and how he lived his life and faith and and those type of things. But today, we're going to look at an opportunity uh, where Abraham showed us something different. He showed us a couple of times where he struggled. And I think that's going to bring us some comfort as we see how that develops. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my grandpas. Um, I had actually two grandpas growing up, as most of us did. Uh, my, and I was the firstborn on both sides. Um, so I got to pick the names on both sides. Um, the plan that my parents had was that I would call one Poppy and one Peepaw. Okay, as you can imagine, that plan went awry pretty quickly. They became Pachi and Pawpaw. And that has stuck since that day. And every grandchild calls him that. And Pachi was interesting. Pachi died really early in my life, but I got a chance to get to know him and spend time with him. He was a much older man. He was just the gentlest, kindest man you could ever imagine. He was so patient. He would sit us on his lap and sing songs. And he would sing these nonsensical songs that there, there weren't actually words, but it's amazing. I can remember those songs to this day. I can remember, and they're... There are almost no words in the song. It's like one re, two re, ikri, and Bob tell Dominic a little toe tan. I'm like, how do I remember that? So 40 years ago. But it's just ingrained in my memory. That song he would sing to me. He put me on his lap and he'd sing that song. But we lost him pretty early. My other grandpa, grandfather, we would call Paul, I called Paul Paul. And then, of course, everybody else called him that. And he, he was a pastor. Uh, but he was always bivocational, which means... He pastored, but he also had another job. He always pastored smaller churches. We lived in Alabama in the country, and, and he was always had these other jobs that he was doing. And one of his other jobs was he was a musician. He was a piano player and a singer, and he, would, he worked for this company that, that auctioned off land, and he would go to these auctions, and he was the entertainment in between the auctions. So he would back his truck up under the tent. He'd have an organ on the back of the truck, and he'd play songs and, and you know, entertain people in between them doing the different auctions. So one of the things I love to do is I would always go with him on these trips, especially if it was summer. 
like I would ride with him and he traveled all over the place. I mean, we went to all kinds of different places and I would go and I got to help the guys set up the tent, which I thought was so cool. And they're thinking, wow, you want to do this? But I just had, and then I would sit up in the truck while he, while he played and just, I was so proud that I was up there and, and, you know, being a part of what was going on. As a matter of fact, he and I spent so much time on the road, he actually is the one that taught me to drive at the age of 12. Um, No kidding, at the age of 12, I was driving in the evening across the state of North Carolina on the interstate with him asleep in the passenger seat. It's a different time back then. So interestingly enough, my parents decided to teach me how to drive. They're like, wow, you picked that up pretty fast. I'm a natural learner. And it's funny, I have so many amazing stories of Paul and the stories he's told me. And I, as I think about Abraham, I just kind of put him in that place. And, and he was a great man of God and just loved Jesus and, and spent his life telling people about God. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about this passage this week, that he also had areas that he struggled. Same way we're going to talk about Abraham struggling today. And one of the areas that he struggled was as follows. I grew up in a pretty sheltered life. I was born, I was in church before I was a week old. The rumor is, or the legend is, I was named in church because that week my grandfather was teaching out of the book of Matthew. So apparently that means I didn't have a name for several days. I don't know what's up with that. But I spent most of my life growing up in church. I was around church people. It was a pretty sheltered life. And one of the things that was most shocking for me was when people would curse. It was just like, oh, how does that happen? Now, of course... It's a little more commonplace here today. But the one thing I remember about my grandfather is when he got mad, he would let out a couple of curse words. And all the cousins would run over in the corner and giggle because it was hilarious. Because he'd be so mad. He'd get so mad. And he had a temper, which I also get that from him. But he'd get so mad and he would say a couple of curse words. And they were never really bad ones, but they were ones that we weren't supposed to say. And we'd run over and laugh. And then he'd calm down later. But that was kind of, I was always like, man, how does he get away with that? He's a pastor. So, pastors don't do anything wrong. Sorry, don't let me paint that picture. So one day he said, hey, Matt, you want to go with me to visit a friend of mine? I said, sure. Can I drive? Sure, you're only 10, but go ahead. Um, So we drove over to a friend of his house, and, and you know, I just had fun hanging around him. You know, I would just, it's weird because I'm 13, 14 years old, and I'd just sit there and listen to him talk. And, you know, as it turns out, I think he was really trying to witness this guy. This was a guy who was not a church guy, and, he was trying to get to know him. And, you know, so I sat and listened to him talk, and then we got ready to leave and jumped in the truck, and I got ready to drive. And, and he, I was pretty quiet because, you know, I thought, man, there's something that was really bothering me. So I was pretty quiet, which is uncommon. And he said to me, he goes, Matt, what, what are you thinking about? And I said, Papa, that man even curses when he's not mad. And it was like, wow. And he was like, I'm sure for him that was one of those moments where out of the mouth of babes. But he was like, well, you know, and he tried to explain it to me. But I was like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how that's possible. But I love my papa. He died 15 years ago, probably. Um, spent a lot of time with him traveled all over, had a great time. He told me, taught me a lot of good things, told me a lot of great stories. But today we're going to talk about Abraham, and we're going to look at a, a couple of parallels. We're going to look at two particular narratives in, in Abraham's life, and these are somewhat lengthy. 
um, but it's important that we understand the nuances of them. So we're going to work our way through them, um, and we're going to draw out the lessons that Abraham's teaching us through these two different situations. The first one is in Genesis 12, which is where we're going to start, in verse 10. And I'm going to read a couple of verses at a time and then kind of draw out some of the things that are happening there. So Genesis 12, 10 starts like this. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now remember Abram, Abraham, same guy. A severe famine causes Abraham to journey to look for a place to provide for his family. And this was pretty common. You know, there were two areas there that were, that were one area was more productive in the rainy season, one area was more productive in the dry season, so they would travel back and forth. So it's not that uncommon that he'd be traveling with his family. So we read on to verse 11. It said, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, it's interesting because there's three narratives in Genesis that, show, that paint a picture of somebody saying that their wife is their sister in order to avoid issues. Two of them we're going to talk about today. The last one is Abraham's son, Isaac, with Rebecca. And it's interesting as we look at these men of God that even they struggled sometimes to trust what God was doing. Now, what we're going to find out later is that what Abraham said was not 100% untrue, but I think we're going to see that his intention was deception. Let's read on to chapter 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, what does that mean? That means she was taken as one of Pharaoh's wives. She was part of his harem. Now, let me just put something in perspective here. The person that they're describing is beautiful, by our best estimation, was about 70 years old. Sarai was about 70 years old at this point. She was 65 when they left where they were going. We think they journeyed for somewhere around five years. So she was about 70 years old. Now, I don't want to get in trouble here and say that you can't be 70 and be beautiful, okay? Um, so cancel the email. Um, but you should notice that this is not just Abraham. It's just not a doting husband saying that she's beautiful. The princes of the Pharaoh even said that. So there was something about her that caused them to say that. Now, in that time, in our, in our world today, beauty is about appearance. And it was a little different back then because beauty could be about a couple of things back then. Number one, it could be about somebody's societal influence. Beauty could be about the possibility of conquering lands. It could be because if you married this person, you became ruler over a certain land. Beauty could also be about your potential for childbearing which as we know of Sarai, at this point was not very good. So we're not really exactly sure why they said she was beautiful, and I think the text leaves that to question on purpose. But the word that's used to describe her beauty is the same word used in Genesis 41 when they talk about Pharaoh's dream, and it describes the cattle. And the word means robust healthiness. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's move on to verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, here's the thing. 
the custom of that time would be that if, if she was Abram's sister, then he would be bargained with to, so that they could take her hand in marriage. So he had set this up so that he would get all these rewards that are listed here. And if he were her husband, he would be an obstacle to the person that was in power. So he'd be pretty likely that they would dispose of him. Now, it's an interesting thing that's mentioned here. It mentions camels. And while that doesn't seem weird to us, in this particular day and time, it's actually not believed, it's, it's believed that camels didn't exist. This is several hundred years before. So the fact that they mentioned camels here is an indication of the wealth of the person that's blessing Abram here. So you, you can imagine he's seeing some pretty amazing rewards coming from this little deceit. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now understand that in that time, it was believed that disease was an indication that a god, some god, was, was mad at you. So when that happened, you would begin to look and try to figure out what it was. Now remember, they don't believe in one god. They have many. So they begin to search out and figure out what is not what what it was that the God was mad about. Now, the text does not tell us how God communicates this to Pharaoh, but somehow God communicates that, that um, Sarai is Abram's wife. Let's read on, chapter, uh, verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram walks away, gets his wife back, and all the stuff that was given to him. Which, that doesn't seem to make sense, because he devised this deception to protect himself. In so doing, he gets Pharaoh in trouble, which I'm sure he wasn't innocent in general, but in this particular case he was innocent. He thought he was taking another wife, which was accepted in that time, from a guy who was his sister. God steps in somehow and informs Pharaoh of what's going on. Doesn't make it clear in the text how. Pharaoh writes his wrong after being punished. Remember, Pharaoh was punished by giving Abraham all the rewards that he got and sending him on his way with his wife. That doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't Abraham be punished? He's the guy that started all this. This doesn't make any sense. Let's look at a different story. In Genesis 20, if you'll flip over there, it's a very similar story, but there's some different details that I think are important to check out. In Genesis 20, verse 1, it says this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. That's a lot of hard words to say. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Notice we're now talking about Abraham and Sarah, so we've skipped over the part where they got their new names. So here we go again. Abraham's moving, you know, he's taking his family on a journey again. He's coming to a new place, and he's like, all right, it worked out for me last time. I mean, I know it was wrong, but hey, it worked out, so I'm going to do the same thing again. But there's some significant details in this particular story that I think are important. Let's read on, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. 
So it's interesting. We know exactly how God spoke to him in a dream. And it's interesting also to note that God typically used dreams to speak to those who were not familiar with his ways. So he uses a dream to point out that Abimelech is, has another man's wife in his house and is about to sleep with her. There's an interesting point here as we read on. Now, Abimelech, Abimelech had not approached her, verse 4 says. Abimelech did not sleep with Sarah, and why is that important? We don't know that about Pharaoh. It wasn't pointed out there. But why that is important here is that if he had slept with her, Isaac is born in the next chapter, there would be debate about whether or not Abraham was Isaac's father or was it Abimelech. So it's very important that that detail was pointed out. So verse 4 says, Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I do not let you touch her. I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall, shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God tells Abimelech, he says, yeah, I get that you haven't sinned, but I'm warning you. If you do, I'm going to kill you. It's over. There's no ambiguity. But Abimelech didn't realize this error on his own. He had to get that word from God. So Abimelech goes and instructs his people to return Sarah. And he asked Abraham to pray for him. Let's read that. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Very interesting detail here. So Abimelech says, dude, what's up? You totally set me up here. Why? What, why would you do that? What, what? You could have just said that it was your wife and I would have left her alone. Fortunately, God swooped in and saved me from making a horrible mistake, but I could have died. What does Abraham say? Verse 11, he says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. It's interesting. So once again, Abraham says, a great man of God, remember? I didn't trust God to take care of me. The ironic part is that it it turns out to be exactly their fear of God that saves them from the mistake because he has the dream and Abimelech fears God enough to know that I need to right this wrong. If that's not bad enough, he takes it a little bit further. Verse 12. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. That's very complicated. She's his stepsister. Half-sister, sorry. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So what happens here? Abraham, this is an extremely intelligent man who spent time with God, who understands what's going on. He's now been caught, but instead of confessing and righting his wrong, he starts to spin the story. But, ah, you know, actually she is my sister. 
Okay, maybe true, but that's not the point. He said that she was not his wife, which she was. Now, understand, too, in that time, it was accepted. It's not an ancestral relationship for them to be married. It was this accepted practice that sometimes the second daughters and so forth would be married so that there was a family line carried on. So that's not necessarily a weird thing. Let's look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah's wife to him. What? What's going on? And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So Abimelech turns to Sarah and Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you gifts. I'm going to give you a thousand pieces of silver, which in that time would be more than most people would make in a lifetime. That's more than a hundred years annual wages. But it's also important that he makes it clear he did not sleep with her. He does that to prove her, her purity with him. Let's look at these last two verses. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So, hmm, it's an interesting story because, you know, what's God trying to teach us here? Because it doesn't seem fair, right? Uh, You know, Abraham made a couple of really big mistakes. Then he tried to spin it to get out of his mistake. He ends up walking away with treasure, a place to live wherever he wants, and he gets Sarah back. Now, understanding, of course, that God's promise is that he and Sarah will start a great nation. So God has to keep his promise. But what is it God's trying to teach us here? I think there's a couple of easy things. I think right off the bat, God's saying, you've got to trust me to protect you. I will protect you, and he was showing Abraham that. But I think Abraham's struggling teaches us something else. I think it teaches us that we all struggle. And if a, a man of God like Abraham, a man that's so well-respected that Jesus would use him as a reference point, to tell people who he is, then anybody could do that. But there's a second thing I think that's interesting here. And it's that God's plan is not linear. What do you mean by that? It's not A plus B equals C. It's not you be good, I will bless you, and you'll have good things. You do wrong, I will punish you, you will suffer. God's plan's way more complicated than that. But I still don't think that's really what applies to us here. Because as God extended grace and redeemed Abraham's struggles, he made it a learning opportunity for everyone. He took that opportunity where somebody struggled, where somebody made a mistake, and he used it to teach all those people. He taught Abimelech the fear of God. He taught Pharaoh the fear of God. Imagine the change that happened in the wake of that mistake. So it's interesting, this has, been a, this has been a tough sermon for me particularly. I'm going to give you a little look behind the scenes, how we do our preparation. Typically when Dan, Justin, or I teach, we try to get ahead because we, on the weeks that we teach, we have to do our regular job. We could have Roby do that, but we, nobody really wants that. 
Um, or he might be off, you know, he has other responsibilities he has to take care of. So we always try to get ahead. So last Saturday, Saturday a week ago, I'm like, got to teach next week. I'm going to jump on this thing, spend some time in this passage, came up with this really amazing angle. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you guys, it had math, geometry, tri- it had a little bit of trigonometry. There was a mention of the quadratic equation, Pythagorean theorem. I mean, it was going to be really, I mean, I was, I was excited. As excited as I'm sure some of you are that I didn't do it. So Sunday I come in, already rolling, got a good angle. I'm feeling good because I get in the head, come in, I sit down in the back to listen to Roby teach. And I kind of start realizing he's teaching my sermon a week early. But I'm kind of distracted because as he's teaching, I'm thinking up ideas and I'm jotting things down and I'm not really paying attention like I normally do. So I'm like, ah, it's fine. I feel like my angle's going to be good. So Sunday afternoon, we go into his office and He's like, hey, you want to run through your sermon and tell me where you're at? And I said, sure, let me give you my angle. So I'm like, I'm going to redeem this plan. So I sit down, I draw things on the board. There's angles and triangles and all kinds of stuff, and I'm excited and passionate, and I get all done, and he goes, yeah, I think I just preached that. So Monday came along, and it's back to the drawing board. So I email the staff and I say, hey guys, I'm going to take an off-site day. I've got to get some traction on this sermon. I'm going to, I'm going to stay off-site and try to really come up with a new angle. So I spent most of that day trying to do that, trying to find a new angle. It just wasn't connecting. It's kind of, I don't know, it just wasn't coming together. But I came up with a new angle I was pretty happy about. I was like, okay, this will work. Tuesday's meeting day around here. We have meetings all day. Nothing gets done except meetings that day. It's good, though. It's all in one day, so the other days are productive. Um, otherwise productive. Meetings are also productive. Never mind. So Tuesday's meeting day, I didn't think about it that much. I get up Wednesday morning and planning to study that morning. And I realize, I don't like that angle. That's not good. The thing I came up with Monday is not good. Email the staff, hey, I'm not going to come in today. I'm going to work off-site. i got to get traction on this sermon. So I stay at home all day, and I work and work and work and try to come up with something. And finally, I come up with this angle that seems promising. It's not there, but it seems promising. Now, what you don't understand is the deadline for us is not Sunday, it's Thursday, because Thursday we have to give regular the stuff that goes in the bulletin. So I get up Thursday morning, come to the office, lock my door, I tell Noreen, hey, I'm not talking to anybody until I get my sermon, my outline done. So I sit in my office and I, I just crank out this outline, which you will find the results of in your bulletin. It's not quite everything we're going to talk about today. So I feel pretty good about it. You know, I'm like, okay, this is good. I feel, I feel good. I feel like God's given me a direction. So Friday is my Sabbath. I decided to take my Sabbath. So we have a typical Sabbath. It's cheat day. Had some cheeseburgers, some pizza. We went to the movies, saw two movies, Tomorrowland and Inside Out. Both Disney movies, you might have guessed. But I just couldn't settle my mind all day. It wasn't a Sabbath because I couldn't. I just couldn't get my mind off of what I wanted to teach. And I couldn't, I wasn't happy with where I was. On top of that, I get a text from somebody that goes here that asked me, are we going to talk about the Charleston tragedy? Which had been on my mind. And to be honest, my first response was, no, we're not going to talk about it. Because we're very picky about what we talk about from this stage when it comes to world events, and here's why. 
we want to make sure that everything that comes from this stage is about the gospel. And then we want you to take that gospel and apply it to the world in the way that God leads you. So we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about things that are going on. We don't talk about a lot of world events because we want to teach you the Bible, and then we want you to put it into practice. So I said, you know what? This is not a good time. I'm not going to, nope, I can't talk about that. We don't talk about that from the stage. So I dismissed it and moved on. But I got home Friday from the movies, and I was just amped. Couldn't sit still, had ants in my pants, walking around, pacing around the house. I started piddling with some home projects. Melissa's like, what's going on? I'm like, I just I can't calm down. So I'm walking around. Now, understand, we don't usually wait until Saturday to nail down the direction of our sermons, but this has been an interesting week. So Saturday morning, I get up, determined to nail this thing down. I'm already way behind, and a couple of interesting things happen that keep me from getting on it right away. A couple of distractions, cell phone. <laughs> Who's playing Candy Crush? It's not appropriate. <clears throat> All right, so I got up Saturday morning. I'm, I'm like, I got to get, I got to focus. It's tomorrow. I'm 24 hours away. I got to, I, I can't get up there and deliver something that I don't feel like God has clearly given me. A couple of distractions happen, family stuff. I get sidetracked. Day's kind of slipping away. It's in the afternoon. I get a text from a good friend of mine, a fellow pastor. His name's Wayne Lomax. And it's interesting, Wayne is the lead pastor of the church that met here before us. And actually, they met for two years after we came here. Many of you don't even know this. They met at 8 o'clock in the morning, had a service here, and they would go to their other campus in Miami Gardens and have their two services down there. So we got to know them pretty well. The name of that church is called the Fountain of New Life, and it is a predominantly African-American church. So when Roby and I met Wayne and his executive pastor six years ago as we started moving to this building, by the way... Um, West Pines will forever be indebted to the Fountain of New Life. They were instrumental in us being here in this building. Um, very kingdom-minded. So as Roby and I got to know him, uh, Wayne brought up the idea, if he goes, hey, would you guys be interested in talking about how do we create a multi-ethnic church? He goes, my church is, I mean, nobody, I mean, white people just don't come. And I'm like, and Roby and I had been having this ongoing conversation about this. Now, back up, before I ever came to West Pine 10 years ago, I was with another organization, and it was designated to me that I would be in charge of diversity. To which I replied, you know I'm a white guy from Alabama, right? (laughs) But far be it for me to ignore a challenge, so I began the journey of trying to understand. Read lots of books and had conversations and watched things online and began to feel like I was starting to get a grasp of that idea. Then I left that organization. And all that kind of went on hold. It was kind of in the back of my mind, but it was not kind of on hold. About a year later, I came to West Pines, and Roby brings up this idea. He goes, if, if we are going to be a church of this community, we have to look like this community. And this community is incredibly diverse. We tell people all the time, South Florida has got to be the most diverse place to do ministry. So we can't look like a piece of our community we have to look like our entire community, and that's not just racial diversity, it's financial diversity, and, and, you know, I call it Christian diversity, people at different levels of understanding of the Bible, and we try each week to be very careful that a person can walk in for the first time and understand what we're saying, but a person who comes every week can also get something out of it. We try to think through all of that. 
So we began having these monthly lunches with Wayne and his executive pastor, who has now planted a church in Dallas. Um, and it was one of the most amazing, it has been one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. They gave us books to read, articles to check out. We continued the conversation over emails and text in between the, the uh, lunches. Some of the books were challenging. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever tried to learn something new? And it's kind of like a curve. You're learning, you're learning, you're getting more, you're learning more, you're learning more. And all of a sudden one day the switch flips and you realize that even though you think you're about to get it, there's way more that you don't even understand. So we're at lunch one day and we're talking to these guys. We're talking about some stuff that was going on. Roby and I get in the car to come back here and we both look at each other and we're like, the only thing I learned today is what I don't know. I'm so far from understanding this issue. So back to the text from Wayne yesterday. Text me yesterday afternoon and said, hey, who's preaching tomorrow? And I said, well, I am. Roby's Roby's out. He says, you going to address the Charleston situation? Like, no, and I give him the party line. No, 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 no. we don't address world events. We do the gospel. And he's like, all right. I said, but, dude, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really struggling with it, really struggling, because this really hits close to home for us. This, is, this happened in a church. And he said, he texts me back, maybe you should ask God what you should do. Ouch. He's not my friend anymore, by the way. So I'm like, okay, it's like 5 o'clock, and I'm like, okay, I've got to focus here. I've got to focus. I gotta, so I'm, I tell everybody in the house, I'm like, put on headphones, I'm going to focus. Sit down, I'm start working on my sermon. I'm like, you know what, I've just got to dig in and see where God takes me. So I start digging into the sermon, and I realize that there is a lesson in here that's beyond or different from the other lessons that we think we saw. And I think what God does for us in this passage is he models what forgiveness should look like. Because here's the thing. God would have been absolutely justified in punishing Abraham. He could have struck him dead. He could have taken Sarah away forever. He could have penalized him financially. But he didn't. He extended grace and protected Abraham from his own mistake. And not only did he do that, but he used that mistake to teach those around him and kept his plan on track. Even after Abraham made the same mistake again twice now, come on, and then tried to spin the truth to get out of it, God did what I call Romans 8.28-ing the situation. Here's what Romans 8.28 says. I want you to read the underlined part with me. And we know that for those who love God, read it with me, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God 828 it. Romans 828 it. It's a new phrase. You can use it if you want. Tag me on Twitter. We all need that grace, don't we? We know we're supposed to trust God. We talked about that last week. A week early. We can't get bogged down in our failures. We have to learn from these things. We have to get back on track. So as I'm reading through this, I'm like, yes, that's where I want to go. That's it. And I'm thinking, 
man, what's an amazing example of this that I can give? Like forgiveness, like forgiveness that people can't imagine ever being able to do themselves. And you know what pops into my mind? The families of the victims in Charleston. They went to the arraignment hearing for Dylan Roof and forgave him and prayed for his soul. Is there any bigger legacy that nine people could leave behind? I'm going to read you a quote. This is from the daughter of Ethel Lance, one of the people that were killed. It says, and she's saying this to to Dylan, I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you, and I forgive you. Could you do that? Could you forgive someone who had tragically and suddenly taken one of your loved ones away? Can any human do that without the intervention of God? And then it struck me. Before we moved into this building, there was a Wednesday night prayer meeting here every week held by a predominantly African-American church. And that very same thing could have happened in this room. Because here's what I think I've learned in all this discussion about, you know, diversity and how to understand is I believe the opposite of forgiveness is judgment. We decide to forgive those who have struggled and mistakes. We decide not to forgive them because we judge them. Now, back to my papa for a minute. He taught me a lot of good things. Like I said, he was a pastor, he shared the gospel, he was a musician, he worshipped God. Uh, As a matter of fact, I have recordings of him playing the piano and singing that thankfully one of my uncles had the foresight to record that I listen to when I'm doing sermon prep. It's kind of my inspiration. So I'll put those in my headphones and I listen to them and it kind of takes me back, the old hymns and stuff. But one of the things he struggled with is racism. I remember the last day I got to spend with him, it was pretty close to the end. He was in a nursing home. And I went to spend the day with him. I thought, you know, I'm just going to hang out for the day. And, you know, he was starting to mentally lose his touch. And so it wasn't super productive relationally, but I thought I'm going to hang out with him. And man, did he say some mean things to the people that were trying to help him. Horrible things. And I found myself spending the day apologizing to the orderlies, apologizing to the nurses. I'm so sorry that he said that. And they're like, you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. And I was like, no, it's not okay. And that started a fire in my soul that it's not okay. Thank you for extending grace to my papa, but it's not okay. And I think that's where that journey started for me because you see what I've realized is I've got a long way to go. I'm at an incredibly large disadvantage on this topic. Whether it be racial discrimination, socioeconomic um, discrimination based on gender, religious discrimination, or any other kind of discrimination, I don't get it. I'm a white guy. I'm in the majority almost everywhere I go, except when I go to Haiti, and then I understand it a little bit. Plus, they speak a different language. I have no idea what's going on. 
I'm not poor. Just to be honest, when I go to Guatemala, I realize none of us are poor. But even in the scale of America, I'm not poor. So I don't know what it's like to not have things. I'm not female. I don't know what it's like to be discriminated against because I'm a female. The only time I ever feel that is when I walk into one of those conversations in the office, all the ladies are talking, everything gets quiet. My wife just looks at me and goes, girl stuff. And I'm like, okay, see you later. I'm a pastor. I'm surrounded with people who believe what I believe. I'm not even challenged in my religious beliefs unless I choose to have a conversation with somebody. So what I realized is that I don't have a right to judge anybody if I can't understand their viewpoint. doesn't mean I have to agree with them. One of the books that Wayne assigned to us was a book on black theology. I didn't even know there was that. And I'll be honest, I don't agree with everything in it. But it's helped me understand how he thinks so that I can learn more and appreciate why he does the things he does instead of assuming it's out of ignorance or out of meanness or out of hatred. The example displayed by the families of Charleston shooting victims has been very convicting for me because I don't know if I could do it. Now, don't get me wrong. Dylan Roof has to be dealt with. But whatever we do to him, those nine people aren't coming back. There's two quotes I want to share with you from Andy Stanley. that He does such a good job with this topic of forgiveness. First one goes like this. Forgiveness is a decision we can make to free ourselves from anger, bitterness, and malice. It's a decision. When we're not forgiving, who's being punished? Not the person we're not forgiving. They're having a good time. The second quote goes like this. In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. Why is it hard to forgive? Because we don't want to let him off the hook. We're like, God, why did you forgive Abraham? He messed up. Punish him. But we don't deserve it either. We're just given something that we got that we don't deserve anyway. So you're like, all right, that's great. That's all wonderful. How? How do I do it? I'm going to give you some things to think about. I'd say the first step to forgiveness is remember that we're all imperfect. We all sin. We all make mistakes. When you begin to look at someone else and criticize them, think about the things that you have done. And then step two, remember what Christ did for us. He gave it all up. And guess what? He didn't deserve any of it. Ephesians 4.31-32 sums it up pretty good for me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, say it with me, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's it. There's not an except. You can look at the next verse. There's not a as God in Christ forgave you, except if you're really mad or except they do something really bad. It's period. It's a period there. Third step. 
Seek to understand, then to be understood. That's usually our problem. We're so busy trying to get somebody to understand us, we're not listening to what they're saying. Understand them first, and then you'll have your chance. And then the last step, this is the hard one. Pray for those you're struggling to forgive. Now, that's not pray that you can forgive them. I want you to pray for them. Pray that God will work in their life. Pray that they'll find success. Pray that the things they do, that though they may have frustrated you, turn out to be things that are good. Pray for them, not for your relationship with them. Be thankful for the good that a person has done. Look for that opportunity. Some of you are here today and you've been hurt. Some of you have been hurt by fellow Christians. Some of you have been hurt by church. Some of you have been let down by a mentor, a pastor, a friend. Some of you are here from other churches that are struggling and having trouble. But here's what I would say. Pray for them. Remember the good they did. If God has moved you on, fantastic. We're so glad to have you. But don't forget that we all make mistakes. Some of us are here and we're being hurt by a friend who's unwilling to forgive us for something we've done. You've got to let it go and move on. You can't make them forgive you. Some of us are here today and we're like, I haven't even accepted that forgiveness that Christ offers. And I'm telling you, that's the first step because without that, you're not capable. The reason those nine families could forgive such a heinous act is because of Jesus. It's not because they're really upstanding members of the community. It's because Jesus granted them the grace to forgive that. Maybe you're here today and you want to take that step, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. It's an important step because it's the first step towards finding that peace. I'm going to ask if you guys would all bow your heads. And if you're here today and you want to take that first step, that you accept God's forgiveness, then I'm going to encourage you to pray this prayer right there in your seat. And it goes like this. It says, God, I am so thankful for your sacrifice. Lord, I ask for the forgiveness that only you can grant. I put my sins on you, on Jesus on the cross. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your family. I thank you for the opportunity to be saved. Lord, I want to turn my life over to you. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up the people in Charleston right now, Lord. What a, what a horrible, horrible thing. And we don't always understand. We don't understand what's going on. We don't understand why it happened. But we know that you will, Romans 8.28, that situation, and we're already seeing it happen. We thank you for the example those families have set. We thank you for the grace you've extended to them and they've extended to Dylan Roof. Lord, we ask that you would help us to follow that example. We ask that you would help us to walk out of here today and extend that same forgiveness to those that have wronged us. 
thank you for the forgiveness you've given us, Lord. And most of all, we pray for healing for the city of Charleston. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.